Welcome to Liberty Chats, produced by members of the Steamboat Institute's Emerging Leaders Council. Thank you for joining us. We talk to a variety of experts, leaders, journalists, and policymakers about our nation's founding principles, why they are still so relevant and essential to preserving freedom for everyone, what specific challenges and threats they face today, and how those founding principles best safeguard and empower everyone's ability, young and old, to attain prosperity and personal happiness. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Liberty Chats, uh, sponsored by the Steamboat Institute. Steamboat Institute is devoted to freedom and liberty. With us today is Mr. Oren Cass from American Compass. Thank you for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me. Yeah, so Oren, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? Uh, you've had a varied career that I think our listeners would be fascinated with. Uh Sure. I uh, worked as a management consultant for a while. uh, And then at the point when everyone else was going off to business school, I went off to law school uh, because I was much more interested in in public policy questions. Uh, Got very involved with then Governor Romney's uh, 2008 and then especially 2012 presidential campaign where I was his domestic policy director uh, and then went to the Manhattan Institute where I was a senior fellow uh, for about five years and worked on on a whole bunch of, of different topics, really focusing on, on the one hand on environmental and regulatory and, and climate related issues. And, and then on the other hand, thinking about, um, you know, anti-poverty uh, policy and, you know, what was happening to lower income households in the country in particular. Uh, and, and that latter part of the portfolio kept getting bigger and bigger uh, as I became more interested in. And, and I think our politics in general became more interested in sort of what's happening to the economics of, of the typical family. Uh, and then ultimately, at, at the start of 2020, I, I set out to, to launch American Compass to try to bring new conservative thinking to, to that set of issues. Excellent. So touching on, you know, the economics of the typical family and, and the start of American Compass, how are, how are those intertwined and what's its purpose and how do you uh, hope to improve the economics of the typical family? Well, I think the right of center in particular is in, in a very tricky place um, in, in our politics and, and in our policymaking right now. Uh, because we we have a what I would say is a dogma that that really goes back to the the seventies and eighties and you know Milton Friedman and Friedrich Hayek and and then the Reagan Revolution that is is focused so much on just the idea that free markets kind of accomplish everything that we need and and the task of government is just to get out of the way uh, and you know look I I love markets I I see my uh, work as being about making markets work as well as possible. Um, but I think recent decades have shown us that, in fact, just having free markets and, and economic growth and, and rising GDP doesn't necessarily translate into rising prosperity for the typical family. Uh, you know, to the contrary, we've seen wages uh, at the median really stagnate for a long time. Uh, you know, we've seen the results of globalization and, and the hollowing out, deindustrialization of many parts of the economy. We've seen the concentration of prosperity in, in narrow geographic regions. And, and I think not unrelated, we've seen a lot of, of rising social challenges in terms of, of lower family formation and the collapse of families and communities, 
in terms of, of deaths of despair even. And so I think for conservatives who, you know, worry about these things and, and who want to see a flourishing society, uh, the question becomes, well, then what do policymakers do? Once once we've flipped through the 1980 playbook and, and none of the tax cuts in it are, are going to solve the problem, what else do we do? We have to, I think, go back to our conservative principles and, and figure out how to apply them to the problems of today. That, that seems really difficult, actually, because I run to a lot of people who, who grew up in the Reagan era or who love Hayek and Friedman, and they're very devoted uh, to the free market solving everything. And so it, it really seems like an uphill battle to convince these people that we need to re-examine these things. And the uh, 1980s playbook uh, has been tried and isn't working in 2020, 2021. Um, how, do you, how do you engage with those, those folks um, on these issues? Well, I think the key is to look at the problems that we actually have. I mean, I would be the first to say that I think Reagan got an awful lot right in, in 1980, given the problems that, that we were facing. The, the Reagan agenda was, was very responsive to a lot of them. But if you start talking about the challenges of today that are, are very different from 1980, so to, to take one example, the rise of China um, and you know having a near-peer economy of, of 1.4 billion uh, people that also happens to be run by a communist party and be author- authoritarian and some hybrid composite, you know, combination of state run and capitalist. And so you say, okay, I, I understand all of the economic theory of why free trade is great, but let's talk about how free trade actually plays out when the country you're trading with isn't a free market. There, there's actually a real tension between free trade and free markets. If free trade is going to mean that our market gets combined with one that isn't free at all. Uh, and so it, as soon as you recognize that challenge, I think people actually quite quite quickly, if, if they're not too dogmatic, um, tend to be prepared to say, okay, you know, how should we think about that? We're, we're not going to abandon our, our conservative principles, right? The answer, well, you know, the answer isn't, well, we, we should be like China. That's, <laughs> that's, that's certainly not what anybody's saying. But the idea that just, you know, get rid of all your barriers to trade and everyone will become richer isn't isn't actually true if if who you're trading with isn't another, you know, capitalist liberal economy if if it's China. And so, you know, very quickly that becomes an issue people are interested in. And and that's a place, you know, I point especially to the semiconductor industry as a place that people have really noticed you know, all the semiconductor manufacturing has has left America. We are no longer even more adv- the most advanced technologically, and it's not because we're not a good place to to manufacture semiconductors. About seventy percent of the cost difference is just subsidies that that other countries are giving companies to build factories there. Mm-hmm. And so you look at that. You know, some people will say, "Well, that's cool. We'll just we'll just use their cheap semiconductors." But I think people who recognize the importance of technological innovation and also for security reasons want to make sure that we are at the leading edge technologically uh, look at that situation and say, yeah, that's that's just not in the Ronald Reagan playbook. Uh, with the exception, by the way, that that when we faced these kinds of challenges from Japan, guess who wasn't a free market guy at all? <laughs> Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan was actually aggressively protectionist in these kinds of situations. And, and so it's really about just getting one layer below the dogma and, and saying policy questions are hard. Let's look at the actual challenges we're facing and be thoughtful about how we can approach them. Policy questions are hard and there's a lot uh, going on in the economy. And some of the things I'm interested 
and and that have come up uh, in the last year uh, are you know financial the role of financial services, big tech, um, and recently you know Romney and Holly and some others uh, talked about family policy. So can you touch on those briefly, and then we'll dive into one of them in a little more detail. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think all of those are issues that that fit this same rubric of just situations where where the world looks different and we have to figure out what to do about it. I mean, financial markets today are, um, I would describe them as out of control. You, you can describe them however you want. They're, they're certainly different than they used to be. And relatively more of the activity is, is things being traded back and forth and relatively less is actually getting investment to productive places in the real economy. So uh, that's that's something we have to think about and ask: is is that serving our economy well? And, and if not, what what should we do? You know, on on family policy, directly as a result of of I think a lot of these economic issues we've faced, it, it has become much more difficult economically to raise a family, particularly on one income. Mm-hmm. And one you know one could take the view that well that's that's just fine. We we don't care. Um, but but if you if you do want to try to do something about it, I, I think obviously in the long term the goal should be economic change that's going to make it so people can support families. Uh, but in the short term, you you have some real choices to make. You know, one approach that that progressives advance is well, let's just sort of provide to the family everything that they might want. So we're going to have public daycare and public health care and so on and so forth. And what you realize is that if you do that, among other things, you commit everybody to doing it the way you want, that now daycare becomes the standard for everyone. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, families that might prefer to have a parent stay home with kids are placed at a disadvantage. So I think, again, if, if you actually apply your conservative principles to the, the challenge we have, it seems to me to clearly be the case that actually finding way to provide direct support to families makes a lot more sense. And this is what you see folks like Romney and Holly proposing is that, you know, you essentially create something that is akin to social security, uh, but for families with with young kids. You know, Romney specifically calls his proposal the Family Security Act. And the idea is that just as, you know, people at the end of life in a lot of cases are going to need support and it makes sense to have them pay in during their lives and then get something back at the end of their life, a young family that's still, you know, early in their earning years, hasn't had a chance to save, suddenly has the cost of kids, they're in somewhat a similar situation. And so saying, you know, we certainly need to have them paying into the system, but let's have a system that also gives something back to them and helps them in these years when they most need it. That That is the pro-family, pro-social uh, way to approach the problem and and ultimately minimizes the, the role that, that government's going to have in the picture. Could you speak a little further on the financialization of the economy? Because uh, it sounds ominous, but when I think about you know, the financial industry, you know, I'm, I'm leery of additional regulations. Like there's something that makes me like, whoa, like, do we need more government interference? Like, how do you address that? You know, because I'm fond of living in America. I like, you know, all the benefits from the free market that I have. And so when I think about changing anything in, anything in that, I'm like, what are going to be uh, the side effects of, of doing that? It makes me really hesitant. And I want to like pull back and really, whoa, well, I think that's exactly the right reaction. That's that's my reaction too, and and I think that's you know certainly my frustration with the the approach you'll see on the left of center, which is they'll go find something that they don't like in the financial markets, and say, well, we're going to pass a law saying that's not allowed, um, and and 
not only do I not think that is a, a good model for policymaking, I, I think a lot of times it, it creates as, at least as many problems as it solves. And so I think what what we have to do is is look at how the financial markets are operating and be very specific about describing what are the problems that we actually see. Uh, so, you know, to give a, an example of a problem I see that I think is very significant, you have, you know, literally trillions of dollars flowing into private equity and hedge funds, these kind of very opaque um, asset classes that obviously, you know, pay extraordinary fees to the, the managers. And mm-hmm. then you look at the performance of those funds and they don't do any better than just putting your money in <laughs> in an index fund. In, in fact, hedge funds do much worse. Mm-hmm. And so you say, well, what is going on there? And I, I think, again, the free market folks are right to say, well, look, if that's what people want to do with their money, who are, who are you to tell them otherwise? But then you look at who these folks are. And, and the biggest flows going into these are public pension funds. They are mm-hmm. politically managed pools of money that have a, an explicit taxpayer backstop that go through a layer of political appointees and then a layer of hired overseers. And it's not their money either, who then hire a set of consultants who then say, well, here are the people we think you should give the money to. And it's actually very interesting when some folks in the pension industry have been gone on the record and said, look, one of the reasons they like private equity is that it's illiquid and opaque. So typically as an investor, if you can't get your money back out for a long time and you can't tell how your investment is actually doing, those are bad things, right? <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. You, would demand a, you would demand a higher return for that. If you're a public pension fund manager, it turns out that actually sounds great <laughs> because you, it, it looks like there's less volatility uh, mm-hmm. and you also can't be held accountable for a, <laughs> for a very long time for how it's doing. And so again, this is a place where I don't think the answer is to say, well, we're going to ban private equity or we're going to ban hedge funds. But I do think we need to say, wait a minute, what are the what are the rules under which these public pools of money get invested? I think there should be much clearer disclosure of what they're investing in and how it's performing. Uh, I think there should be very clear conflict of interest rules regarding who can advise them on making those investments versus who collects the fees. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and then I think we should also have very clear benchmarks that say, look, here is how something much simpler would have done. Uh, and let's be very clear on whether you're actually getting value for your money or not. And so, so those are the kinds of interventions that I think should be extremely appealing to conservatives. But, but they have to get past this idea that, well, anything that's happening in the market is surely for the good, because that's that's just not true. Markets, <laughs> many things that are for the good happen in markets, and and we certainly want to harness their power. But doing that well also means setting the rules around them and over time noticing when the rules aren't doing what they should and and when we need different rules. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Uh, further question, because that was a really fascinating example. Who would look into that issue? I mean, can we trust the SEC or someone, another agency, or you know, does Congress really the one that needs to dive into this this issue? Like how would we actually get, you know, the kind of things that you just described a moment ago? Well, I think there are a few ways to do it. So obviously one is legislative. Um, you could pass a law saying, you know, th- these are the accounting standards that people need to be held accountable to. Um, in some cases, you can also do it through regulation and you can say, 
um, you know, any fund that's operating in a certain way must release these types of data X, Y, Z, or these kinds of transactions will be presumptively considered conflicts of interest. Um, you know, ultimately, I, I think there is probably some new legislation that's required and that that in particular, what we need to do is just say, look, if you are a fund that wants to be taking public investments, here are the here is sort of the standard of transparency that you have to adhere to. And and I think that's that is an appropriate um, function for government to, to set that kind of guideline. Uh, and, and frankly, I think it's it's something that probably makes a lot of sense for the federal government to do. It's, it's very interesting to contrast the U.S. system to Canada's. Um, Canada, decades ago, said we have all these provinces, we have all these public pension funds. Um, you know, if, if each one goes its own way, there's it's going to be inefficient and a lot of it's going to be poorly managed and they're not going to have any leverage in the marketplace. Uh, let's instead essentially create a um, pension management agency that, again, we've already decided this is something the government's going to do, right? You, you can take the position we shouldn't have public pensions and, and you know, sure, go have that fight. But but as long as we have public pensions, uh, we're going to have to have standards for managing them. And there's a lot to be said for uh, pooling resources together and having clear rules. Uh, and and so I think that's something that, that we should want to see more of. No, I, I think we should all be in favor of uh, clearer rules so that everyone understands what's happening and we can hold uh, people and entities uh, to standard. Um, we're about out of time. Uh, so my last question is, what would you recommend uh, for summer reading? Oh, well, that's a great question. We actually have on our website, we we created something that we called, call required reading, um, which is a, a pretty long list of, of different readings on different topics that uh, we think sort of trace the the genuine tradition of of conservative economic thinking that that's really been lost somewhat in in recent decades. And so it, you know, it, it starts with some some quite dense stuff from the 1800s that that, that I wouldn't necessarily recommend uh, for summer reading. But but then it gets into you know some really important work from the middle of the 20th century, um, some of the the best commentary over the last 20 years, including from from some of our current elected officials. I think. Folks like Senator Rubio and Senator Hawley have, have put out some really interesting work. Uh, so uh, if, you, if you just Google it, it's called Foundations of American Renewal. Uh, and it, it will should, should be the first thing that pops up. And uh, a bunch of anything from, from 100,000 words to, to 2,000 words, there's, uh, there's, there's something interesting there. Excellent. I'll have to check it out. Well, thank you for joining us today, Oren. Uh, I really appreciate your time. And thank you for listening to the Steamboat Institute's Liberty Chats. We hope you'll join us again. Thank you for listening to today's Liberty Chat. I'm Erica Anderson, the producer of the podcast. Our podcast editor is Fingers Malloy. My co-producers include Charlotte Whalen, Zachary Rogers, Lindsay Martin, and Christina Eastman, all members of the Steamboat Institute's Emerging Leaders Council, who represent the next generation of free market, free speech leadership. We hope you tune in again for our next Liberty Chat episode. I wanna be free. I wanna be free.